This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Tragedy of Puddinhead Wilson by Mark Twain. Chapter 6 Swimming in Glory. Let us endeavor so to live that when we come to die, even the undertaker will be sorry. Puddinhead Wilson's Calendar Habit is habit, and not to be flung out of the window by any man, but coaxed downstairs at step at a time. Puddinhead Wilson's Calendar At breakfast in the morning, the twins' charm of manner and easy and polished bearing made speedy conquest of the family's good graces. All constraint and formality quickly disappeared, and the friendliest feeling succeeded. Aunt Patsy called them by their Christian names almost from the beginning. She was full of the keenest curiosity about them, and showed it, they responded by talking about themselves, which pleased her greatly. It presently appeared that in their early youth they had known poverty and hardship. As the talk wandered along, the old lady watched for the right place to drop in a question or two concerning that matter, and when she found it, she said to the blonde twin, who was now doing the biographies in his turn while the brunette one rested, if it ain't askin' what I ought not to ask, Mr. Angelo, how did you come to be so friendless and in such trouble when you were little? Do you mind telling? But don't, if you do. Oh, we don't mind at all, madam. In our case, it was merely misfortune and nobody's fault. Our parents were well-to-do there in Italy, and we were their only child. We were of the old Florentine nobility. Rowena's heart gave a great bound. Her nostrils expanded, and a fine light played in her eyes. And when the war broke out, my father was on the losing side and had to fly for his life. His estates were confiscated, his personal property seized, and there we were in Germany, strangers, friendless, and, in fact, paupers. My brother and I were ten years old, and well-educated for that age, very studious, very fond of our books, and well-grounded in the German, French, Spanish, and English languages. Also, we were marvelous musical prodigies, if you will allow me to say it, it being only the truth. Our father survived his misfortunes only a month, our mother soon followed him, and we were alone in the world. Our parents could have made themselves comfortable by exhibiting us as a show, and they had many and large offers, but the thought revolted their pride, and they said they would starve and die first. But what they wouldn't consent to do, we had to do without the formality of consent. We were seized for the debts occasioned by their illness and their funerals, 
and placed among the attractions of a cheap museum in Berlin to earn the liquidation money. It took us two years to get out of that slavery. We traveled all about Germany, receiving no wages and not even our keep. We had to be exhibited for nothing and beg our bread. Well, madam, the rest is not of much consequence. When we escaped from that slavery at twelve years of age, we were, in some respects, men. Experience had taught us some valuable things, among others, how to take care of ourselves, how to avoid and defeat sharks and sharpers, and how to conduct our own business for our own profit and without other people's help. We traveled everywhere, years and years, picking up smatterings of strange tongues, familiarizing ourselves with strange sights and strange customs, accumulating an education of a wide and varied and curious sort. It was a pleasant life. We went to Venice, to London, Paris, Russia, India, China, Japan. At this point, Nancy, the slave woman, thrust her head in at the door and exclaimed, Oh, missus, de house is plum jam full of people, and dey's just a spilin' to see de gentleman. She indicated the twins with a nod of her head and tucked it back out of sight again. It was a proud occasion for the widow, and she promised herself high satisfaction in showing off her fine foreign birds before her neighbors and friends, simple folk who had hardly ever seen a foreigner of any kind, and never one of any distinction or style. Yet her feeling was moderate indeed when contrasted with Rowena's. Rowena was in the clouds. She walked on air. This was to be the greatest day, the most romantic episode in the colorless history of that dull country town. She was to be familiarly near the source of its glory and feel the full flood of it pour over her and about her. The other girls could only gaze and envy, not partake. The widow was ready. Rowena was ready. So also were the foreigners. The party moved along the hall, the twins in advance, and entered the open parlor door, whence issued a low hum of conversation. The twins took a position near the door. The widow stood at Luigi's side. Rowena stood beside Angelo and the march passed and the introductions began. The widow was all smiles and contentment. She received the procession and passed it on to Rowena. Good morning, Sister Cooper. Handshake. Good morning, Brother Higgins. Count Luigi Capello, Mr. Higgins. Handshake, followed by a devouring stare and... I'm glad to see ye, on the part of Higgins, and a courteous inclination of the head and a pleasant, most happy, on the part of Count Luigi. Good morning, Rowini. Handshake. 
Good morning, Mr. Higgins. Present to you Count Angelo Capello. Handshake, admiring stare. Glad to see ya. Courteous nod. Smiley, most happy. And Higgins passes on. None of these visitors was at ease, but, being honest people, they didn't pretend to be. None of them had ever seen a person bearing a title of nobility before, and none had been expecting to see one now. Consequently, the title came upon them as a kind of pile-driving surprise and caught them unprepared. A few tried to rise to the emergency and got out an awkward, my lord, or your lordship, or something of that sort. But the great majority were overwhelmed by the unaccustomed word and its dim and awful associations with gilded courts and stately ceremony and anointed kingship. So they only fumbled through the handshake and passed on speechless. Now and then, as happens at all receptions everywhere, a more than ordinary friendly soul blocked the procession and kept it waiting while he inquired how the brothers liked the village, and how long they were going to stay, and if their family was well, and dragged in the weather and hoped it would get cooler soon, and all that sort of thing, so as to be able to say when he got home, I had quite a long talk with them but nobody did or said anything of a regrettable kind, and so the great affair went through to the end in a creditable and satisfactory fashion. General conversation followed, and the twins drifted about from group to group, talking easily and fluently, and winning approval, compelling admiration, and achieving favor from all. The widow followed their conquering march with a proud eye, and every now and then Rowena said to herself with deep satisfaction, And to think, they're ours, all ours. There were no idle moments for mother or daughter. Eager inquiries concerning the twins were pouring into their enchanted ears all the time. Each was the constant center of a group of breathless listeners. Each recognized that she knew now for the first time the real meaning of the great word glory, and perceived the stupendous value of it, and understood why men in all ages had been willing to throw away meaner happiness, treasure, life itself, to get a taste of its sublime and supreme joy. Napoleon and all his kind stood accounted for, and justified. When Rowena had at last done all her duty by the people in the parlor, she went upstairs to satisfy the longings of an overflow meeting there, for the parlor was not big enough to hold all the comers. Again she was besieged by eager questioners, and again she swam in sunset seas of glory. When the forenoon was nearly gone, she recognized with a pang that this most splendid episode of her life was almost over, that nothing could prolong it, 
that nothing quite its equal could ever fall to her fortune again. But never mind, it was sufficient unto itself. The grand occasion had moved on an ascending scale from the start, and was a noble and memorable success. If the twins could but do some crowning act now to climax it, something unusual, something startling, something to concentrate upon themselves the company's loftiest admiration, something in the nature of an electric surprise. Here a prodigious slam-banging broke out below, and everybody rushed down to see it. It was the twins, knocking out a classic four-handed piece on the piano in great style. Rowena was satisfied, satisfied down to the bottom of her heart. The young strangers were kept long at the piano. The villagers were astonished and enchanted with the magnificence of their performance, and could not bear to have them stop. All the music that they had ever heard before seemed spiritless prentice work and barren of grace and charm when compared with these intoxicating floods of melodious sound. They realized that, for once in their lives, they were hearing masters. End of chapter 6